Today's text is from Philemon um, 4 to 21, verses 4 to 21. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Thus be the word of the Lord. Before we try to figure out what God would have to say to us, Through this letter to Philemon, let's bow our heads and pray that he would open our hearts and open our eyes to see him. God, Onesimus, that name means useful. A slave who felt he had no use in this world. Many of us feel that way. Often I feel that way when I stand up to preach. Who am I? So we ask that by your spirit right now, you would make this message useful and you would make our lives useful, that we would make the glory of King Jesus known, not just in a preaching and hearing of the word, but in going and making the word known in our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, shine the light of Jesus through us and start it right now through this word. Amen. I'd like to start off today by reading an excerpt from the story of the Pilgrim's Progress. If you're in the Opperman's community group, you guys read this and studied it a while back. I'm going to jump right to the end. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read it yet. At the end of John Bundren's classic, 
Pilgrims' progress. The pilgrims have arrived at the celestial city, ready to finally walk into the home they've had before their eyes during this long, dangerous journey. And there they saw it before their faces, extremely glorious, beautiful, covered in pure gold. They were thrilled to finally arrive at their restful destination, yet there were two angels Glorious, shining angels who explained to them they had one more obstacle to overcome before they could enter. So here's what Bunyan writes. Now I further saw that between them and the gate was a river, but there was no bridge so that the pilgrims might cross over. Moreover, the river was very deep. So Christian and hopeful were shocked at such a sight, but the men escorting them declared, You must pass through this river or else you cannot arrive at the gate of the city. Then the pilgrims began to despair in their minds, especially Christian. They looked this way and that, but no alternative routes could be found by which they could avoid the river. Then they asked the men if the water was all the same depth. And they replied, no, but could offer no further help. Then you shall find it deeper or shallower according to your trust in the king of this place. At this, the pilgrims resigned themselves to face the water. Upon entering, Christian began to sink so that he cried out to his good friend, hopeful, I sink in the deep water. The billows go over my head. All its waves go over me. And hopeful replied, be courageous, my brother, for I feel the bottom and it is firm. Then Christian said, Oh, my friend, the sorrows of death have totally surrounded me so that I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that, a great darkness and sense of horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see ahead of him. Here, to a large degree, he also lost his senses so that he was unable to remember or talk intelligently about any of those sweet refreshments that he had experienced while traveling on pilgrimage. Rather, all of his present talk tended to reveal the present terror of his mind and the fear that he would perish in that river and never gain entrance to that city. Therefore, Hopeful struggled here in his attempts to keep his brother's head above water. Yes, sometimes Christian would seem to have sunk down for good. Then after a short while, he would rise again, seeming half dead. Hopeful would attempt to comfort him, saying, Brother, I see the gate and men standing nearby to welcome us. But Christian would answer, It is it is you. It is you that they are waiting for. You have been hopeful ever since the first I knew you. And so have you, said Hopeful to Christian. Oh, brother, replied Christian, surely if I was right with the king, he would come to my rescue. But on account of my sins, he has brought me to this snare to abandon me. Then said Hopeful, my brother, you have quite forgotten the text. These troubles and distresses that you are experiencing in these waters are no indication that God has abandoned you. Rather, they are sent to test you as to whether you will recall to mind the evidences of his past goodness and now rely on him in the midst of your present trials. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was in deep thought for a while so that hopeful spoke to him further. Be courageous. Jesus Christ makes you whole. 
And with that, Christian exclaimed in a loud voice, Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. Then they both took courage. And with the result that the enemy then became as still as a stone until they had finally crossed over. Therefore, Christian now discovered solid ground to stand upon. And so it followed and that the rest of the river was found to be shallow. And thus they both crossed over to that celestial city. If you haven't read that book, I encourage you to read it as an encouragement to keep on through your life as you face many trials. Because the way of the gospel, the way of a Christian, is a way of great difficulty. As we heard with Christian and his friend Hopeful, God requires us to face many challenges in life in order to make it to that promised land. And when we're faced with these obstacles, we always try to find some other way to go, to get around it, or to run away from the obstacle. But God intends that we go through it alongside faithful brothers and sisters willing to walk with us, confident in the strength that God gives to us in it and the joy he promises beyond it. And that's what Paul's letter to Philemon is all about. Paul's friends are faced with a really difficult scenario. He says there is no way around it. They must tackle it together if they desire to experience the joy of God's grace in it. Yes, it will be costly, scary even. It threatens their safety, challenges everything about who they believe they are in the world and about what others think of them. But Paul calls them to display the gospel through costly brotherhood. And he calls us too to display the gospel through costly brotherhood. The way he encourages these brothers to do this is a masterclass on persuasion. Incredible. How can you encourage your friend to do the right thing when it seems to be too difficult? First, Paul will make an appeal to God at work in Philemon in verses 4 to 7. Like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, they're only going to make it through the river if they keep their eyes on Christ, remembering his past faithfulness. Second, Paul makes a gospel appeal to Philemon's mind in verses 8 to 16. He lays out the facts of the situation, encourages Philemon to think on it, and make the right decision. And finally, he makes a gospel appeal to the emotions in verses 17 to 21. We aren't strictly rational creatures. We like to think that we make our decisions based on logic, but Paul here confronts the fears of his friend with gospel hope. So today we're going to see how Paul does that. How does Paul encourage his friend to cross the dangerous river with eyes on Christ? Let's go back and read the text again and let God's word speak to us. First in verses 4 to 7, and see how he makes this gospel appeal to God. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. 
Now, what's striking about this whole letter when you read it through, it doesn't take more than a few minutes to read the whole thing, is that it's intensely practical. Usually Paul starts off his letters with some kind of theological foundation or he includes these songs of doxology, praising how great God is throughout the letters to, to remind us of foundational truths that he builds his commands off of. But here in this letter, it contains very little of all of that. He just jumps right into making his appeal. First, he appeals to God in prayer, we see in verse 4. He offers a prayer of thanks to God. There's so much wisdom here in how Paul starts his hard conversation with his friend. Sometimes you feel like you need to say something difficult to a friend, to someone you love, and you're not sure how to do it, or what needs to be said, or even if your heart is right. And so Paul shows us how to get our hearts right first. As Jesus says, remove the log from your own eye first. And then have confidence that your words will be well-spoken and well-received. And to set your heart towards a desire that this conversation would build unity, not separate your, the two of you. And so, you notice here that when Paul speaks to Philemon, it's kind of indirect. He's not telling Philemon how great Philemon is. He's thanking God for Philemon, recounting all the ways that he has watched God work through this man. So before he can appeal to Philemon and his mind to make this difficult request, he has to remind himself how good God has been through Philemon. It's really hard to be disappointed or frustrated with a friend when you're so thankful for how God's working in their lives. You can't be, if you don't get your heart right first, then you'll come across as bitter and angry towards someone. But instead, you just list, list off the ways that God has been at work in that person. So you see here how Paul does that for Philemon. Paul has heard reports of Philemon's faithfulness and generosity. If you compare this letter to the letter to the Colossians, you can see that they're the same church he's writing to. This one just more specific to Philemon. But Paul didn't plant this church. Paul met Philemon and Epaphras in Ephesus when he was preaching there. And those two guys heard the gospel, ran back to Colossae, and started a brand new church there that Paul wasn't involved in. But Paul is delighting in hearing this news because this church is flourishing. Philemon hosted this church in his own home. Many people felt welcomed by his generous hospitality. New converts joining the church and growing in holiness. Paul can see this isn't anyone else's doing but God himself. And this is how you can encourage someone without puffing them up. You tell them, all the good things that you see as evidence of God at work in you. So if, if your child does something good and you praise them for the goodness in them, you're actually training them up to be a self-righteous legalist who always points to their own goodness. But if your child does something good and you say, wow, that's incredible. God is at work in your life. Then you are training them to love goodness and to want to do more of it, but also to be much more dependent upon God. And it humbles the child. This 
is the type of encouragement that we must give to one another. That Paul is giving Philemon, reminding him there is goodness in him, but it's not his own goodness. It's God's goodness. So after that foundational introduction, Paul is finally ready to set up his appeal in verse 7. Paul says that seeing all of this work unfold gives him so much joy and comfort. Paul's getting no benefit out of it. He's stuck in jail. It's uncomfortable. It's not a joyful place to be. But this is the source of Paul's joy. Throughout the whole New Testament, when Paul talks about being joyful and being comforted, it always comes from the knowledge that other people are growing in unity. Churches are growing in holiness. That they're growing in eagerness for heaven. It's never because he personally gains anything for himself. His joy is seeing Christ in others. Seeing the gospel strengthening others. And keeping them unified on this path of faithfulness. It's with this hope then that Paul makes his gospel appeal to Philemon's mind. Trusting that God is already at work. He's certain that God is here among this church. So if he asks the people of this church to cross a dangerous river in order to experience God's grace, he knows God is going to carry them through it. And so he makes his appeal in verses 8 to 16. Read along with me again. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf. During my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent. In order that your goodness might not be by compulsion. But of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant. But more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother. Especially to me. But how much more to you. Both in the flesh. And in the Lord. So, to understand really what's going on here, you kind of have to grab different pieces of the text and look to Colossians a little bit and, and connect the dots and read between the lines. It's a little bit of work, so I'll just give you the quick summary to save us some time. So what's happened here is Onesimus is a runaway slave who belonged to Philemon, a very wealthy Roman elite who... Obviously had enough money to own slaves and a big enough house to host a large church service in. But somehow Onesimus escaped and on his way out stole some money from Philemon. Since all this stuff happened, incredibly, both men have become Christians. Philemon, as I said before, came across Paul in Ephesus. He and Epaphras then started this church in Colossae. It's been doing wonderfully. Onesimus tried to run as far away from Philemon as possible, traveling a thousand miles to get to Rome and lose himself in a sea of unknown faces. 
but God. In his providence, brought Onesimus to Paul's prison cell. We don't know how. And Paul shares the gospel with him, and Onesimus becomes a Christian too. And here's Paul getting to know Onesimus' story, being encouraged by his conversion, and also hearing reports from Colossae about how this church is doing. And he suddenly realizes, wait a second, there's a connection here between you guys. And Onesimus is shaking in his boots. I'm I'm not going back there. Don't even talk about it. And Paul says, there's more than a connection here. There is a great, wonderful gospel opportunity to show off the glorious grace of Christ. And so he determines, you're going back. You're going back to Colossae, Onesimus. He's going to send him back to his master. And he's writing this letter to Philemon, sending it with Onesimus, telling him to receive him back with abundant grace and forgiveness. This is a big deal. It's a huge ask. When we talk about unification and reconciliation and forgiveness, we're not just saying someone who said something mean to you. Hey, come on, get along. Can't you work it out? He's asking someone who was oppressed and abused to return to his oppressor. He's asking, he's appealing to this master to restore this man, not simply by forgiving him. Hey, that's okay. No big deal. But by elevating him to his side as an equal. Emotions are running crazy in both of these men. Onesimus feels like he finally got free and he found his place in the world alongside Paul, making this glorious promise of the gospel known. He doesn't have money to make it back to Philemon. He doesn't have money to pay back Philemon. According to Roman law, as soon as Onesimus shows his face, Philemon has a right to kill him. And Paul wants to send him back. But Paul also expects Philemon to forgive Onesimus. That comes at a great cost to him as well. He'll have to he, he not only loses the money that Onesimus stole and all the money he invested into Onesimus. Now he has to spend money to find another servant to do all of the work. But even more than that, think of what his fellow upper class Romans would think. He is making a mockery of the Roman way of life. Letting someone take advantage of you and rewarding them for it. Elevating them to equal status. Are you kidding me? The other Roman elite are thinking, we need to put a stop to things like this. Or our slaves are going to think that they deserve such treatment. And if we don't give it to them, then there's going to be this huge slave revolt, as sometimes happened. This request has huge social order implications. What Paul is really asking of these two men is that they die to themselves. That they flip the worldly way of life upside down and display a radical new way of living in Christ. So to convince Philemon to take this huge, huge risk, Paul appeals to his mind in three ways. First, he appeals to Philemon's authority, even submitting himself to Philemon. In verses 8 and 9, Paul says, look, I'm an apostle. I have the authority in Christ to tell you 
You ought to do this. If you call yourself a Christian, this is what you must do. But he's not going to pull the authority card. Like Christ, he empties himself and becomes a servant to others. Submits himself to Philemon. Onesimus had become his great ministry partner. In verse 14, though, Paul says the right thing to do is return to Onesimus, or return to Philemon what belongs to him. And trust that God at work in him will do the right thing. Throughout his plea here, he also appeals to their familial bonds. Though they may have social order to consider, they also need to think about who they are in Christ. They're a family. Paul says in verse 10 that Onesimus is my child. In verse 12, my very heart. In verse 16, he says, receive him as a beloved brother. These may sound like appeals to emotion, but Paul's really appealing to Philemon's mind. Think about who you are in Christ, not who you are as a Roman. He's saying, you, yes, you have certain rights as a Roman citizen, but more importantly, you have certain responsibilities as a heavenly citizen. And so he reminds him of who Onesimus is, not just a brother. But even his name, Onesimus, means useful. So in verse 11, Paul says, Philemon, you may have thought he was useless, but now he's in Christ and he is useful, very useful for both of us for gospel work. He's been Paul's ministry partner, his good friend during his imprisonment. Paul would personally just love to keep him close. He's such a comfort to me while I'm in prison. But Paul is going to deny his comfort for a greater gospel usefulness. He says, Onesimus is useful to Philemon to display the gospel in costly brotherhood. Imagine when these two guys come together. What a testimony. What an encouragement it is to the church to see this impossible relationship built into something full of love and mutual respect that encourages everyone else to jump in and do something like it. Or imagine what a great witness this is to the community. The watching world sees them just turn everything upside down to see a love on display that unifies, brings together estranged social enemies. What kind of love are we witnessing here? Think about it, Philemon. This is the type of life Paul wants to see all Christians living. He wants to witness the power of the gospel on display in the most dangerous, impossible, socially unacceptable situations. And so, knowing this danger, he finally makes an appeal, a gospel appeal to the emotions. Jump back into verse 17 with me. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. 
So as much as we like to think we're rational people who logically put things in order and make decisions, Paul knows what is really stirring Philemon's heart. If we're honest, we will realize that we make most of our decisions based on fear, what we might lose out on, what people will think of us. Every time we make a decision, we need to think about what am I fearing? How that's keeping me from doing the right thing. And so in verse 17, Paul considers Philemon's fear about losing face in society. This decision could cost him friends, cost him status. And so he, Paul appeals to his friendship, encourages him, I'm still going to be your friend. In fact, I'm asking you to grow more friends, particularly in Onesimus. He reminds him in verse 20, I'm still your brother. I'm making this appeal in order to create a greater unity. I'm not calling you out to separate you, create division and shame. No, there is gospel unity for you in this. In verses 18 and 19, then Paul appeals to Philemon's fear of financial loss, saying, Paul says, I'll pay your debts. You owe me anyway, so I'll, I'll even forgive that debt. Here's Paul, again, showing himself to be like Christ in his own actions, taking debts upon himself as his own. He's being Christ-like and calling Philemon, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he also appeals to Philemon's pride, challenging him to one-up Paul. Hey, come on, Philemon. Are you going to let an old man stuck in prison outdo showing the gospel? I want to see God's grace abound in you. You're free. You have way more opportunity to show off Christ. Take this opportunity. And so finally in verses 20 to 21, Paul returns to that gospel hope. He wants his own soul refreshed too. Remember back in verses 4 to 7, how he said it was so encouraging to him to watch Philemon refreshing other people's souls with the gospel. Now he's saying, do this thing. Make my imprisonment worth it. Don't stop. Take that grace to the next level. I am eagerly anticipating hearing the wonderful news of your reunion and what gospel ripple effects it's had throughout the city. He knows that God has been at work and he made this difficult appeal to him, but he knows that same God at work in him will do far more than he is expecting and he can't wait to see it. Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of gospel work we want to see regularly in our midst. Seeing you guys pursue one another, love one another, be generous to one another, unify and work together, be in each other's homes. That is the most joyful thing to a pastor's heart. It's working. God is working in you. Oh, what a joy it is to watch that. We want our actions to so loudly proclaim Christ that people are constantly asking us for an explanation. Why would you do that? If you pay close attention to this letter with your gospel lenses on, you may have noticed something unique compared to all of Paul's other letters. Something 
seems to be missing. If you heard us preach regularly, you know that it's the same thing that we always preach. Every sermon needs to come back to this thing, the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection. But Paul mentions that no, not at all, not one time. But that doesn't mean it's missing. It is actually to be found in every appeal to gospel action. Paul displays the gospel by denying his authority, humbling himself, taking on other people's debts, rejoicing in other people's victories. Onesimus displays the gospel by turning back to his master, seeking forgiveness and trusting that he has a home with his master. Philemon displays the gospel by forgiving debts, setting aside his rights, elevating his brother as an equal. This letter is an appeal to all of us to display the gospel through costly action so that people are forced to ask you, why? Tell me, explain to me what is going on in you to give you the opportunity to speak the truth about Jesus' death and resurrection. So how can you prepare yourself to display that gospel in your life? We see here that the primary place to express this gospel devotion, this gospel work is in a costly brotherhood in the church. Sisters, that includes you too. It's just hard to say in a manuscript, brothers and sisters every time. So all of us are included in that call to costly brotherhood. We, Paul wants us to make our heavenly citizenship the primary focus when we're determining our rights and responsibilities. Make your church family your primary source of joy and comfort when life gets difficult, when you have huge decisions to make. Listen to the appeals of your brothers and sisters before making those big choices. And prepare your heart to display the gospel. In a way that Paul lays out here. Consider these final three thoughts from Paul's letter to Philemon. First, he wants us, we see from this example, that he wants us to have a disposition of forgiveness. As Christ has forgiven us. As crazy as it is that Onesimus stole from Philemon and Philemon probably abused Onesimus, Their sin against Christ was far greater, and Jesus forgave that. And so we need to approach every conflict, every disagreement, every conversation with a joyful eagerness to overlook offense and forgive and forget and unify with one another. Once you start trying to assert your rights and seek judgments, demand fixes or list off records of wrongdoing, You've already lost sight of the gospel. Be eager to extend grace and quick to overlook and forget offenses. Second, we must have a willingness to bear other people's burdens and their debts as Christ did for you on the cross. Even if you don't owe somebody something or nobody owes you anything... Find ways to be generous, to take burdens off of people so they can be free to enjoy the family of God as your equal. Search for opportunities 
to unify people more with the body, not encourage them away, but to pull them in closer. Which we do finally by striving to elevate others to a place of equality, as Jesus did in his resurrection. He humbled himself, becoming a servant to all in order that he could lift us up to his side into glory. Is there someone you look down upon in your life because they're younger, they're not as educated, they're not as successful or as organized, they're not as good of a parent, they're not healthy or wealthy like you are? It's so easy to stand up on your perch and look down at people and say, well, the reason you're in that position is because of this. And that's why I'm not there. Who cares why they're there and why you're here? Empty yourself of your advantage in order to lift others out of their disadvantage to a place of equal brotherhood in the family. Paul wrote to this same church in Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. He said, here in the church family, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. It sounds like a wonderful utopian existence. And one day it will be. Come Lord Jesus, I can't wait until that day. But it's something that we get to experience a little bit even now. Like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, it's going to be difficult. It'll be a dangerous journey. It will cost you your worldly values, your rights, your comforts, your privileges. But... God is setting before you a joyful, satisfying brotherhood in Christ. Only by keeping our eyes on him can we keep our heads above water. Can we stay connected with one another and experience God's grace together on that path to the celestial city. Let's pray. God, what, what grace is this? Maybe personally we've felt that grace as, as we feel forgiven from all of our failures, all of our sins, all of our offenses. But help us to see, God, that there is more grace to be had in seeking out costly brotherhood and sisterhood in the family of God in our local church family. God, reveal to us ways that you have blessed us in order that we may be a blessing to others. Reveal to us ways that others are useful for the gospel. Show us, open our eyes to see Christ at work in one another so we don't grow bitter and frustrated and start seeking out division. But we can see Christ working in one another and it unifies us together. God, this world can be like that deep raging river. Would you pull us out of it and keep our eyes on Christ? Help us walk together and give each other words of encouragement to say, I can see, I can see the promised land. I can see Christ in you. Let's keep on going. God, reveal yourself to us more and more for the glory of King Jesus. Amen.